Well, first of all, welcome, Chris. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Good to be here, Mike. And what we're doing is we are just um, basically this is a way of helping our audience get to know you uh, a little bit, get to know your ideas, kind of like what you've brought to Leading Agile, what your thoughts are. So it's going to be just kind of freeform, right? So we're just going to talk a little bit for the for the next bit. So where I thought we'd start is, do you recall when you and I first met? I don't know the first day, but I kind of do know the the general time. Was so. it was it at the Agile 2008 conference? Was it in Chicago? Was it at Chicago on the boat? I, I think it was at Chicago. Um, version one boat, actually. Yeah. So on, you were hanging out at Pillar at the time. I was with Pillar. I was um, at version one. Yeah, I was uh, yeah. year six of Pillar. You're six point. of Pillar. Okay. Yeah. yeah. How long were you at Pillar in total? Total of seven. Total Left seven. right after you joined. Yes. I don't so, know why, but it's well, just yeah, coincidence. Kind of a funny coincidence. Yeah. I remember that was a, that was a pretty cool conversation. Um, what was interesting to me is you and I have like very different backgrounds. Like I really came out of project management and you came out of like technology, right? So you're kind of an early XP guy. I am a lifelong, I don't know how early, yeah. um, but I'm a lifelong, you know, I'm developer by training, right? Yeah. So I came out software developer, um, Kind of have two chapters that I kind of consider myself, uh, maybe and maybe one in the middle. Yeah, um, I started by solving really cool problems with code, mm-hmm. and when that happens, uh, tends to you tend to get responsibility for people. Yeah, so I started to solve problems with people and lead teams. Um, worked for an organization that uh, very large organization, about a thousand developers in that organization, um, and then decided to go do a startup. So about your uh, July of two thousand. Okay, great so, time to go do a dot com uh, pre pre manifesto. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. great time to go yeah, start sure. a dot com. Okay. Right, so yeah. I went uh, into a startup uh, with some folks, and I went from being a developer who uh, thought way too big, you know, architect, mm-hmm. um, solving problems ten years out mm-hmm. with complexity and like things that were never going to happen, and speculating way out into the future to being the guy who was trying to start a business and needed to have funding three months from now. Yeah. And so to, in order to keep going and I hired an architect and uh, his, I would ask him for something and he would say, Chris, in five years, we're going to need this. And mm-hmm. I would say, punkage in three months. If yeah. we don't have this, I don't, you know, we don't have cash. Right? Right. I can't pay you in three months. Uh, our investors need to see progress. And so um, I went from being me to working with me mm-hmm. and I found it to be super frustrating. <laughs> just like, yeah, just like working you. with you now. Yeah. yeah it's all yeah, good. Right? Everybody else too. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but it was kind of a, it was really kind of a seminal pivotal thing for me because um, I, it, it was the first time I really hooked into value. Right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's a reason that people's paychecks cash and don't mm-hmm. bounce, right? It's like mm-hmm. somebody sold something. Um, and you got to deliver it. And so thinking 10 years out about what might happen and delaying that um, could be could be not just costly, but deadly to a business. So that lasted for about two years. Um, and then I joined Pillar. Yep. And Pillar was uh, what you'd consider to be an early adopter. They started extreme programming with extreme programming in about uh, 1995. Okay. So when I joined them in 2002, they'd already been doing Agile and XP for about seven years. Yeah. So kind of a, you know, to me, it looked like a bunch of weirdos. Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, hired to lead their OnStar account, which is about, they were about 3 million in revenue and that was about 2 million of the revenue. Mm-hmm. So I was responsible for 2 million of the revenue the day I hit the ground. And I was kind of a developer leader uh, when I was there. And so what I saw though was these amazing small teams of developers out delivering, um, 
you know, teams three, four times their size from Accenture, from... So you didn't IBM. have any formal experience with Agile before you started that gig? Nothing. Okay. So um, <clears throat> just kind of, you know, maybe talked well or something. I was yeah, reasonably sure. smart. And yeah. so Pillar hired me. And so really to... to I'd had experience running software development organizations. Sure, yeah. And so... So they hired me and I was just blown away by what these teams of two or three, you know, or four developers could put out that the competition couldn't touch. Right? Mm-hmm. I was out executing, you know, IBM global services and mm-hmm. at the time, you know, um, other consultancies. And so, um, but I didn't know why I didn't know what made it work. Mm-hmm. So I didn't understand agility when I took it on. I thought, well, it's gotta be these practices. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, so agility has got to be test-driven development, continuous integration. At the time, even in 2002, we were doing those things, not with all the support and tools that we have today, but we had automated deployments. Um, you know, you run one command and it would go in or out or whatever. So a lot of the things that are kind of cool DevOpsy things that we talk about today, we were doing back in 2002 and OnStar under the covers. Mm-hmm. OnStar didn't particularly care about Agile. Yeah. But as an agile, as a as a vendor who owned part of their system, we were able to do a lot of work that our competitors couldn't do in a way that they couldn't do it. And so, um, so I went on this journey and I tried to understand what makes this work. And I went through my practices phase, my kind of mechanics phase. What's well, these practices? And all I have to do is teach people these practices, and they'll be as good as my teams. The magic will happen, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and what I found out was uh, that didn't happen. So when I tried to Part of my job was then to scale out what we did at OnStar to other clients, to other mm-hmm. pillar clients. And so I tried to hire developers and I tried to teach them these practices. And in many cases, it didn't work. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of went through a phase of then thinking about, okay, it's the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I tried to get the certain types of people, really smart, intellectual, like, you know, smartest guy in the room type people. And I put teams of those people together and it didn't all work. didn't work well together, huh? right? Yeah. So yeah. somehow that didn't happen, right? Yeah. Um, and so I've been on that journey ever since. Um, but then you and I kind of came together. I, you know, I'd synthesized the point of view that I think by the time you and I were together, that was a little bit more team-based, mm-hmm. but still very technical in its nature, right? Agile was a very flat, horizontal thing for me. Yeah. Everything was kind of, uh, you know, continuous delivery or bust. That well, was was so let me connect the dots. So you said at the point that you and I started kind of working together, you had come to believe that the team was really what made it work, not the practices. The team proficient with the practices. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I hadn't quite yet, you know, at that point in Pillar, by the time you and I met, I'd been probably mm-hmm. in 40 different companies. Yeah. You know, um, trying to get them to do what pillar could do. Mm-hmm. And what I found was some of them worked. Um, some of it, it, it held. And it was usually when we had leaders in the company that we were working with who were very transformational in nature. Yeah. Early adopters yeah. who really wanted to do this stuff uh, and were willing to go whatever through whatever they had to do to do it and really lean in. And, and so they were actually change leading. Mm-hmm. The transformations where I had those leaders, we were successful, successful. Yeah. Where I did not, we would fail. <clears throat> right. So it was a bit of a cult of personality, I guess. Yeah. What's interesting is during that time, at the time that you were having those formative years with pillar, I was at version one 
I think, because that was what I was doing right before um, I ended up joining with you guys. And one of the things that I got super clear on was that, you know, we were teaching people a lot of scrum and a lot of the project management kind of practices, not as much of the technical practices. And what I had learned during that time is that if we couldn't form a complete cross-functional team, we couldn't stabilize velocity. And if we couldn't stabilize velocity, we couldn't be predictable. And so that's kind of the time when I got anchored on, okay, if we can't form a complete cross-functional team, doesn't matter what we teach them. Right. So was that kind of what you would come to the conclusion or is it something different? Yeah, I don't I don't know that I had that broad base of view. Right. Mm-hmm. I, it was again, um, I understood the world through a developer's eyes. Yeah. And part of that was moral. This is just how everybody should work. Right. And people who are, you know, are clubbing me over the head with finance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Other concerns outside of development kind of didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Right? So it was, it was somewhat moral and myopic. OK. Um, so the, the, the notion of cross-functionality was give me, a, you know, we didn't call him this at the time in Pillar, but a product owner. Yeah. And then give me four really good XP developers. I can build about anything on the planet. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and the problems we were solving tended to be something that would fit within a team, you know, a team. Yeah. And even our OnStar system, uh, the way that that was architected um, was very, it was very decoupled and multiple teams could work without really having to affect each other much. And so the thing, the problems that they had to solve crash notification, one team could solve it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the class of problem wasn't scaled mm-hmm. and it was a very technically centric. Like if you didn't have a CI system with really tight tests, you know, fast tests, slow tests, all the things that we believed, um, then you weren't, you know, you weren't <clears throat> agile. Yeah. My, yeah. In my sense. Okay, cool. So I honestly don't remember this. This is you actually came and worked with us once, left, back. So you're you're one of our first boomerangs at Leading Agile. Um, what was the context under which we started working together the first time? Did I call you? Did you call me? Like, like I really don't remember. It's been a while. Um, I don't know. You've called me so many times. I know. I, I just hunt you down and just don't take no for an answer. It's kind of much a, it. it's kind of a pattern. It's right? Pretty much it. Yeah. Um, just the relentlessness. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, that, that really that really just sold me you my, down. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's how I got my wife. So yeah, uh, same thing. There you go. Um, so yeah, the the you and I had uh, you know a brief overlap in our pillar days, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we established a rapport and a mutual respect. And at the point in time that you and I worked together the first time I had, I had left pillar mm-hmm. and um, it had been gone for a while at that point. Right? It had been I gone. I took a corporate gig, did my yeah. own transformation, yeah. um, which um, learned a ton doing yeah. that. Right. It was really, uh, uh, you know, as an executive, I had to own it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had come to its end. It went well, um, but change happened. And uh, I had gone into consulting again. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was, um, you know, I was working in consulting and I was at Comcast, I think at the yeah. time and doing some work with some really good work at Comcast actually. Um, and then uh, you and I connected. I don't remember if I called you or you called yeah. me, but you and I connected and uh, you know, we decided we wanted to work together. Yeah. Very cool. So, yeah. so, so given the fact that you are like an, a technical guy at your core, right? Um, more than that, obviously now, but like you're a technical guy at your core XP. Um, a lot of times the approach to transformation, as you mentioned, is like, is like um, technical practices based. It's very moral, that kind of a thing. Like what prompted you to think that what we were doing with all this expeditions and base camps and four quadrants and all that kind of stuff, like what was the intrigue there that made you say, 
yeah, I'm willing to suspend disbelief and go down this path a little bit. You remember? Yeah, I do. Um, so I am a, uh, I'm someone who has benefited from people blowing up my brain for, mm-hmm. you know, I have mentors who still do it and uh, I value them. I treasure them in my network. So there are people I still call when, you know, when I feel like I know it all or when I, you know, when I'm done learning mm-hmm. and they're so smart, they can just like completely disassemble me for fun. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I seek out those kinds of relationships. How do you, cause every time I get blown up, or my, my brain gets disassembled, I have to put it back together. Mm-hmm. And these people are really good at giving me new tools and thinking and data points and connections so that my mental models get stronger and stronger. So I don't ever want to be a person who believes that I know it because mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. Right. My mental models are always incomplete. And there was, uh, there's a person in my past who really taught me that. And I think he was just like, screwing with me you know <laughs> just, just mess with just you a for little fun bit. Yeah, like this go. guy thinks he knows everything okay yeah. boom right uh. and so um and i you know and i have to go rethink everything i thought i knew yeah and so i i super enjoy that so there were a couple of things um you know there was one that was you know it was a mutual respect thing but but two it was just so vastly different mm-hmm. um that uh you know and and having been on you know, frankly, you know, admittedly one part, one, one end of the XP kind of scrum wars, mm-hmm. um, that still rage today. Um, you know, I thought it would be, uh, not only beneficial, but fun mm-hmm. to come join a company that doesn't think like I do, yeah. doesn't approach the problem. Like I do, doesn't do what I do. I knew I would be rendered incompetent from the day I stepped in the door. Um, so, which was kind of cool. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, and what I forced myself to do was to not dismiss, not assert, to not have a point of view that I was going to impose. Yeah. So just to, to learn, just become a pure learner and learn how, you know, these scrum people and, you know, project manager folks and how they thought and, 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 and how they came at the problem. Well, so it's fascinating for me. It's a, it's funny you say that because it's like, I don't really identify as a scrum person per se. I actually do kind of identify as a project manager because I, I kind of grew up in that world. But the practical reality is, is that um, uh, in spite of my degree of computer science, I never really did that professionally. Right. So when I went off to become a coach, I was like wondering if I could do it because I didn't like have, like, I couldn't sit down and pair program with anybody. Like I couldn't sit down and like teach them anything technical in that regard. And so like our whole model was really derived out of like, I got to figure out how to make a living and do something that I know how to do. And so for me, that was like organizational design and it was getting backlogs in the right place. And it was getting teams positioned for success and getting them the tools that they needed to be successful. Right. So like my approach wasn't like born out of um, principle. It was born out of necessity, right? Right. Absolutely pragmatic, just like, what can I do to contribute kind of a thing? So, so former XP guy or even current XP guy in this new world, working with a bunch of people who take this organizational design project management centric approach, like what was the, like, what were the hurdles conceptually that you felt you needed to get through? Well, so maybe, uh, you know, um, to finish that last point, um, what leading agile actually does did thinks um, there was no way for me to actually understand that coming in. Yeah. And so we like to put people in boxes cause then we can understand what they're going to do, what they're not going to do. And it creates safety. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I can predict 
And so as far as I knew I was coming into like was a scrum guy was a scrum. Yeah, yeah, sure. right? So yeah. that was my perception yeah, is yeah. a bunch of scrum yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, how do these guys think? Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and what do they do? And so, um, so that was the, the process coming in. Um, the hurdle, the, probably the biggest hurdle I had was I do have a point of view. I had years of experience. I had years of experience that many people haven't gotten to accrue. Mm -hmm. I was running a professional services company doing agile transformations for seven years from 2002 to 2009. Um, having lots of failure, some mm -hmm. success as well. Right. So just going through and trying it in so many different places when it wasn't cool yet. Mm -hmm. And there just weren't a lot of people around who knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I had all of that experience and then I went and left and, and, sat in a corporate executive role and I did it myself. And now I wasn't the guy advising this guy in the seat. I was the guy in the seat. So I had to deal with a lot of things that I'd never had to deal with before. What do you do with co-employment when mm -hmm. you're trying to do an agile transformation? What do you do with your funding models and capitalization and time tracking and mm -hmm. budgets and things that I just never, you know, if it wasn't code and if it wasn't, you know, flow of stories or things like that, I just never dealt with it. Mm -hmm. So I had all of this rich experience and what I had to do is just kind of, I still had to be valuable to leading agile, which mm -hmm. I couldn't leave it at the door. But what I couldn't do was to assert a point of view. And so uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but there were times where I was very, you know, uh, laid back. Yeah. I was like, I want the aggressive Chris that yeah, I knew yeah, back in the yeah. pillar days. Yeah. People who yeah. know me know that yeah. I'm not always laid yeah. back. Um, I have a point of view. I will advocate for my point of view. And you were expecting me to jump in and generate contact and like be that guy. Yeah. Cause typically, and now you've seen this sense, right? It's like the way that I learn is like, I like, I want to go to battle. I want to have like a harsh exchange of ideas. And you like, just would not engage in that way with me for a long time because you I do now, but yeah, the way. I do. Yeah, but, so. but that's because I, I, I believe that I have a better understanding, still mm -hmm. not a full orb understanding of, of, you know, everything that you and Dennis have been thinking about for so long. Right. But, um, there's still, expositional things that like I get the epiphany and then I realize, okay, that was something that was in the system, you know, yeah. six years ago. Well, um, well, so it's fascinating just to be really honest about that. It's like, it's like a lot of the, what Dennis and I had in our head, like we had kind of a notional idea about it and we were talking about it because we just knew it was true, but we hadn't in, in a lot of ways gotten far enough with a client to exercise it. So like a lot of times what we're encountering is like Dennis and I are very quick to say, Oh yeah, we, we already knew that we've known that for 10 years, but we actually hadn't built anything around it yet. We just kind of right. knew it existed. Right. It was almost like a Higgs boson, right? We knew it, we knew it was there in the model, but it's like, we had never experiment experientially seen it. Right. That kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew um, during that time, I knew you wanted the contact. Right? Yeah. I knew you wanted the engagement, but I also knew that if I engaged, um, it would be at the cost of my own learning, yeah. my own observation. Yeah. So um, until I felt that I had incorporated enough of the foundations into my own thinking and had blown my brain up enough times and rebuilt it uh, to, to have a better systemic understanding of, you know, of, of all of your experience and all of my experience and all of Dennis's experience and all of those things, I just wasn't going to assert myself yeah. because I would have robbed myself of the very reason I came yeah. to leading agile. Cool. Awesome. So kind of a weird loaded question, but like, like as you've worked with us, right. Coming from this rich background that you have, like, like what do you think was the, um, what's the secret sauce? Like, like what have we brought to the table that maybe you hadn't experienced before? Uh, yeah. So, you know, in my technical past, um, 
looking at the world from really from the developer's point of view, which is a very valid, and those are the people that actually are writing the code to do the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't in, in, in my work in pillar was still very, I would describe it as horizontal. Mm-hmm. So if I form these XP teams and I break the problems down, you know, I should be able to do the work. And, and what I found was some cases I could, some cases I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, um, I developed a metaphor for it, right? Which is, uh, the statues in the marble. Mm-hmm. All we do is help chisel. And I would go in in places where they wanted to change. Um, and they had a, a good, effective executive change leader that I could work with through gravitas and figuring it out. We could change the organization. And I experienced success mm-hmm. with my own transformation doing that. I didn't have a system for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't perceive it as change management. Yeah. I didn't really even know what change management was. Right. So, uh, where there was change management driven by somebody else, I could do it and I could influence them mm-hmm. as an executive. Um, and, and, and so it worked. What leading agile has really uh, opened up for me is the notion of change management, that this is a change management problem. And so uh, I can try to teach as much test driven as I want, but if the organization doesn't have any appetite to, to constrain its demand, mm-hmm and actually not just swamp teams and thrash them with work, there's not much I can really do to help those teams. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I would just flip the bozo bit on that organization and those leaders and say, you're just not ready or you're just not capable. Mm -hmm. But the reality is I didn't have an offer to say, a system to say, um, here's what we got to do. You know, we need to put this in place so that this will work to create, you know, clearings and conditions for this stuff to function, you know, the technical practices, the the general kind of existence of agile teams, you know, to remove the toxins from the organization. And so what leading agiles um, helped to grow in me is scale. Frankly, I can solve much larger enterprise problems. Mm -hmm. I can, uh, I can really, um, so whereas before I could, you know, I was a pretty good developer Mm -hmm. um, and which is why I got more. Um, I could use code to solve very difficult, complex problems. What I'm finding is this is the equivalent of that kind of tool set. Mm-hmm. But the, the problems I'm solving are organizational, organizational problems. problems. Yeah. So now I can take all of the syntax and all of these tools and frameworks that are at my disposal and I can use them. I don't follow them. I don't check box or anything like that, but I can, you know, do the same thing I did as a developer, which is used to solve very complex enterprise problems specifically around, you know, you might not exist if you don't do this stuff and, you know, right. you know, you might go out of business. And so how do we, how do we solve that problem? Yeah. You know? Comment or question. So one of my favorite compliments, and I don't even know if you ever remembers even saying it was one time it was, I think it was Ron Jeffries on like a agile project management message board or something like that. Um, he described what we were trying to do is he goes, Mike is trying to create the kinds of organizations that a developer wants to work in. Right. And I thought that was like a really cool comment coming from Ron. Right. Because, you know, he's kind of like the Uber developer guy. Right. And, you know, the fact that he recognized that whether we were good at it or not, the fact that we were trying to create the right ecosystem for developers to be successful. That's kind of a cool recognition. Right. So I take that as like a very cool compliment from somebody who probably doesn't even remember saying that to me. So um, the other thing that I kind of wanted to explore with you. Right. Is I know that. over time, people in your networks have pushed back on what Leading Agile is doing. And so um, like maybe, you know, for somebody who wants to take a more developer or technical practices approach, um, 
but yet is getting exposed to our base camp model and the quadrants and expeditions and things like that. So, so what's your perception of maybe how some people are maybe misunderstanding what we're trying to do? So first empathy. Yeah. I was there. Yeah. That was my point of view. I would have had the same reaction um, had I not actually, you know, what, what was, um, Maybe available to me that wasn't available to these folks is I had moved beyond the developer ranks. I mm-hmm. still write code, still do today. Mm-hmm. I, I hobby code. I don't. No one. No one ever wants to pay me to do it for a living anymore. <laughs> but I still write code. I pair with my kid. Like um, you know. So there's things that that I do um, that are still technical. But I had made the leap that two year leap into a startup and become a businessman. And so, um, so I was. I was able to have some experience that maybe they, you know, other folks haven't, mm-hmm. that don't have, but it still happens. And, you know, so empathy is the first response. Um, dialogue mm-hmm. is the second, but what I find is um, some people are done learning. They have the answer. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's moral. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a right way. There's a wrong way. And it's interesting, you know, um, David Hussman, dear friend and mentor, um, always talked about dude's law. The value mm-hmm. of anything we do is the magnitude of the why or the how. Um, but I think sometimes uh, folks lose sight of that and they need to pronounce themselves as having, they are the expert. I have the answers. I don't, yeah. I don't need to learn more. I don't need to entertain this. Um, and the, the, the problem with that point of view is if you believe that, if you believe you have nothing left to, to learn, by definition, you yeah. are right. Yeah. And so it will self-fulfill. And so um, we have people that I run into have that initial response as I did mm-hmm. and who will do the same thing I do, which is say, hey, let me unpack this and let me look at it. Maybe skeptic, mm-hmm. um, but I'm willing to have a look, right? We have other folks who are more cynic. I don't care how much evidence you give me, right? I'm just not going to believe it because yeah. I believe this. And yeah. uh, so there, there's a, when people get locked into rigidity, morality, and when they're done exploring and learning. None of us knew this when we were born, mm-hmm. right? None of us probably knew it when you we were in high school. At some point we had to start learning it. Um, the danger is, is when you're done. Right. Um, one of the coolest things that, um, that I think you've contributed to leading agile to date is um, you've helped Dennis and I make explicit some things that were maybe more implicit, right? That we, we kind of had a notional idea about it, or we were attempting to do some things, but, but you've made them very explicit for us. And one of the first things that you kind of brought to the table with us is the explicit decoupling of what we would call now a system of delivery versus a system of transformation. And so help me understand, right, kind of in your words, how do you, what do you see as the distinction between system of delivery and system of transformation? Sure. So when, when we first met and we were exchanging ideas, it was, it was sometimes difficult to communicate Mm -hmm. um, because there were elements of just at that point, the system that we Mm -hmm. called it elements of the system that I had to localize to a client that, um, that seemed frame breaking. But in reality, it's because they had a different scale to Agile model, mm-hmm. um, not different change management model, mm-hmm. not different way of going about and and with outcomes helping teams and you know uh, and teams of teams to to move to higher levels of business agility. So we had a hard time sometimes talking to each other and learning from each other because we didn't have that distinction. And so it was a necessity, I think, um, that I, that was created along the way. Um, because there is no universal one system of delivery that, mm-hmm. you know, the universe wasn't created with 
only a single scaled yeah. agile system of delivery right. that works, right? Um, but there is some universal universality to change management and how people need to, to go through change and experience change and what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so um, – not saying it's moral right or wrong, but there are patterns that emerge again and again and again. And so, um, so by by creating that distinction, I thought we were be, we were able to ha- have better conversations. If we go into a client and there's a specific agile system of delivery uh, that we believe works, right? We're not going to help to to implement something, install something, and scale it if we don't think it scales or works. Mm-hmm. You know that that's not something that necessarily adds a lot of value for us to go say, well, no, the right one is this one. Mm -hmm. This is the only one. This is the right one. But we need to have a way to install that. That's, that's not just, uh, systemic, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's holistic. It's, you know, it's repeatable. It's all of that. So, um, so I thought creating that distinction could allow us to, uh, to anchor on the things that we agreed upon that, you know, that, um, need to be done, you know, pretty much every time we do something as, a, as an organization and then where we could uh, engage with the client and take care of their local concerns. Yeah. So let me see if I can um, put some of my words around it and see if you agree with me. So when we were talking about the system of delivery, right, we were talking about um, in, in general, the methodology, right? Things like safe or scrum or large scale scrum, something like that. Right. Um, one of the things that I think is cool about our interactions is we've also distinguished um, within the system of delivery, the difference between like what we might call a reference architecture versus a reference implementation, Right. So team based delivery, Kanban based program and portfolio layers, different metrics, right? Those things become reference architecture patterns that are kind of quasi universal. And then specific implementations of those patterns, safe being a specific implementation, less being a specific implementation. We do custom implementations all the time with clients that are hybrids of lots of different things. And I think one of the things you were experiencing was that you're working with a client that had a specific reference implementation. Right, that wasn't the leading agile model per se. Right, it wasn't what our kind of default place was at the time. Right, and so it was driving this conversation around systems of delivery and how dogmatic are we about the system of delivery. But the the distinction for me came is when we started talking about this idea of breaking organizations into expeditions and moving them through base camps, and then what turned out to be what we call outcomes based planning and all the different activity definition and how you measure the transformation. Um. That's when you coined the system of transformation phrase, right? And what was very powerful about it was the ability to distinguish the operating model that we're trying to help the client install versus how we were going to get to that operating model, right? right? So what are the patterns for how are we going to form teams and stabilize teams and stabilize throughput across the organization? And what are we going to measure and how are we going to start evaluating dependencies and economically weight which dependencies we're going to break, right? Those kinds of things. And to the point you just made, what's super fascinating is that what we found is that the system of delivery can be almost anything. The system of transformation is, is almost universal. We, we find ourselves doing the exact same things at almost every single client at this point. And I would say, um, and we prove that when for whatever reason we don't, mm-hmm. something doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy, so, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, one of the things that's really been driven home on your latest engagement is the idea of metrics. And, you know, metrics can, you know, a lot of people fight against metrics because it's like they're used for evil so often, right? Because they used to beat the teams up or whatever. Right. But what we found is if we can't demonstrate the value 
of the transformation in real economic terms, right? Real performance terms, then it's really difficult to actually keep people's attention and to justify the spend. So beyond that, um, you know, our clients have clients, they have, they're ha- they have CFOs, they have yeah. boards of directors, and they're making investments in this change. Yeah. So they've bought in to doing this agile thing, mm-hmm. um, and they've, you know, they've made strategic decisions that they're going to change how they work. Uh, if we can't show how that that decision is is causing is driving improvement in terms mm-hmm. of their ability to deliver to their business, um, it's not just us. Right. It's them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the sponsors who said like, we've got to do this. And so it's, it's not just beneficial. I mean, it's universally beneficial. You know, the, the mantra that I've tried to use uh, in, in our clients is if you have a system where um, agiles are, you know, metrics are using, are being used for badness, right? They're being used to beat people up. Um, the metrics aren't your problem. Mm-hmm. You know, back to Ron's point. Yeah. Know, it's probably not a place where a developer wants to work. Yeah. Right. So let's go at the behavior. Right. And that's a change management problem. Mm-hmm. So let's eliminate the behavior, not the tool. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times in the agile community, like uh, we start to withdraw tools because we are very work surface based. We're very horizontal. We don't have the change management in place. And the things we're creating, uh, you know, they start to be used for badness. Mm-hmm. Velocity is not necessarily a bad you know example there, mm-hmm. right? So velocity starts to be used to beat teams. It's not velocity is not the problem, <clears throat> right? Right. It's the behavior we need to remove, right? And so uh, you know we focus hard on removing the behavior, not the tool itself. Yeah. So um, I'm going to take you in a different tangent just a little bit, and this is going to be pretty exploratory, right? So this is something we were talking about in the previous hour, something we've been exploring with leading agile as a concept, and I want to see if we can riff on this a little bit. Okay. okay. Um, so for anybody listening to us. We have no idea what you're going to get here right, for the next 25 minutes or so. So, Cause, cause we um, well, yeah, right. So it's yeah. like, just like anything else. Like um, I think I was telling you when we coined the phrase field notes for our blog, it was because, you know, we don't purport to have all the answers, but the idea is, is that we're out figuring things out, right? We're on the tip of the spear with our customers trying to solve problems in real time. And one of the things that we've seen quite often is that, um, organizations, as you might imagine, aren't static, right? Not only are the products that we're building not static, but the organizations themselves are not static. And so what's interesting is you go in and you install uh, or you help lead an agile transformation, right? You put in an agile operating model and then the business conditions around which that model was designed to deliver for change, Right. And so we've kind of coined this. We don't know what we're going to call it yet. System of sustainability, system of continuous improvement, system of improvement. We played with some different names. Right. But talk with me a little bit about the things that you're seeing with the clients you're working with that are driving and making that conversation so important for us. Yeah. So we have, you know, you can think about that as like micro um, disruption and then, you know, macro disruption. Yeah. So, uh, just in the normal course of operating any business, um, your markets, your, your customers, the problems you solve, uh, the things that make you viable don't naturally just flow in in even amounts to all of your, your teams. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's fluctuations in demand within a normally operating stable system. Like, Here's these business capabilities over here for the next three things we want to do for the business are going to be super change. You know, there's going to be a lot of disruption and a lot of change, but these other ones aren't going to change much. But then maybe in six months it could change. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of change in the system 
from a from the flow of demand um, meeting capacity in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we can't if we don't have any fluidity, if we can't actually align our capacity to our demand, then we have constraints. Mm-hmm. So uh, we might have a team that's way undersubscribed and a team that's oversubscribed, and the, the undersubscribed team can you know think of things to do, but they're not. It might not move the needle. Meanwhile, we're not going to get as much done for the business because the oversubscribed team you know can't can't get any more work done. So there's this normal fluidity that needs to be established in a system. And then you have the, the, the macro disruption and, you know, you could be the disruptor or the disrupted and you have, uh, you know, some large new wave of change comes through. Some S curve really starts to hit and now you have to da- adapt quickly. Um, things you didn't do before you have to, to do and you have to do it as fast or faster than your competition or your entire existence uh, is threatened. And so um, it's, it's, positive and great and a a great accomplishment to set up a stable system. But if that system can't actually adapt to the kind of problems that you have to solve um, with the capacities at which you need to solve them, the time, the speed to market, those kinds of things, eventually itself will become the bottleneck. I want to be really clear, right? So a lot of times we're talking about installing agile to respond to the change in market. Like, so features are changing, right? The, The needs of the market are changing, but it's almost like the assumption is that the organization itself, its delivery capability is static. What you're saying is that sometimes the delivery capability itself, the things that it builds, the way it organizes itself to build them actually needs to respond to change as well. Is that what I'm hearing you say? It does. Um, You're not, you know, with, with the types of things you take on in a normal course of business, uh, you know, if I have five teams, each one can do 20 gallons of work. I'm just not guaranteed. And, and in, frankly, the universe isn't going to be so nice to me to give me 20 gallons of work all the time for five teams. Evenly. Mm-hmm. So I might have fluctuations just day to day between those teams. I have to establish fluidity between those teams. But there are times where the alignment of that is structural and long term. So it's not just temporary. We see long-term, you know, shifts in demand patterns through the organization against our business capabilities, and we realize that structurally we're oversubscribed or undersubscribed or poorly structured. We don't have things grouped correctly, mm-hmm. and so, or you know, we have big gaps to close, and we just don't have a lot of bench strength to close it. Mm-hmm. And so, we we, we want to change the structure and the alignment, uh, you know, of our capacity, and basically divide the problems up differently so that we can actually get capacity demand. So mm-hmm. there's there's ongoing operation and then there's just like the things that we have to do when we get big shifts in the nature of demand against our business capabilities. So it's almost like there's a there's a um trying to think how to say this. It's almost like there's a there's a capability to flex how we're building features against a known product set and then a capability to flex the organization to adapt to the need for like maybe even new product sets or something like that. Like, I don't know if that's the way to describe it, yeah, but it's fascinating. I, I, I would yeah. suspect you know, it doesn't it's like an in the business on the business. It's like, it's like agile as we think about it is like the way that we operate in the business to build, to do the work of the business. It's almost like an agile capability to work on the business. I would say it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's core to business agility. <clears throat> yeah. So if we take agile, as a thing, you know, as a term off the table, when we think about business agility, we have customers who, who, who we believe will give us money or some other thing that we value. 
in response for some set of problems that we solve. Mm -hmm. So we're going to create something for them and they're going to give us something. There's an exchange of value. And so um, there's just, it's just never going to be that those things are static. And if, if, if our agile implementation, if our structure is static, it's, the business agility of that structure is not real high. So right? let's go down this ra- a rabbit hole just a little bit, right? So we were talking um, previously whiteboarding. So um, Chris flew into town to uh, to whiteboard with me for a few hours, and then we were going to do this podcast. And we were talking about the kinds of services that a system of sustainability might have to have. So talk to me a little bit, about, just to anchor everybody. So we, we know that the business needs to be able to respond to change systematically. Like the business structure itself needs to be able to respond to change. What kinds of capabilities need to exist in the organization to sustain the dynamic nature of the organization? Um, I would say at the very core, and this is something that Leading Agile really uh, you know, helped me with right in my thinking. I didn't have any context of this. Mm-hmm. I've been an architect, but I'd never really, I guess, thought about business architecture that much, is uh, you need to have a, a, a good, solid understanding of your business architecture. And so uh, having a capability model as a basis for understanding how value flows through your organization. How do you take it? What do you do as an organization to take care of your customers and how do those things work together? That turns out to be an invaluable kind of foundation for how you want to organize your, your agile system of delivery. So, how, you know, how do I define my team, my product teams and my integrating structures and how do I group things? So it's uh, it's a, it's, a, it's an important service to have. And surprisingly, a number of our, our customers don't have that function mm-hmm. and they don't have that knowledge. They don't actually know what they do and how it all works together um, specifically to to satisfy various customer value propositions. And so having that function is foundational and, and setting up that capability. And so that's, you know, it's part of our part of our system is to help to instill that and to install that capability in the company. Um Beyond that, um, there are numerous change management kind of services that we need to have. And, and so um, we, we certainly need to, to have coaches. Um, so having some sort of coaching service there, uh, it's, it's you know, a critical thing. Um, the ability to uh, assess progress mm-hmm. and metrics. Yeah. So it's an important service. I, if I don't know what I'm actually measuring myself against, I don't know if I'm getting any better. Mm-hmm. So that turned out to be a, a very important uh, part of of an internal capability that customers need as well. Um, it drives you know virtually everything we do. Yeah, very cool. We were also talking about exploring the idea of like, like we, we, I think you guys were calling improver teams, like the like having like a capability within the organization that kind of like looks at the performance characteristics of the organization and makes recommendations for like how to adapt. Like, are we going to form teams around something different? Do these teams need to perform better? Are they underperforming relative to market expectations? Like, do we need to flip the structure of how these teams get formed and aligned? I think it's fascinating, right? It's an interesting concept to me. Yeah. So, and and that's very, it's a very pragmatic and, 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 you know, it's very practical uh, thing that we need. I mean, we, we, you know, our customers spend a lot of money, on transformation to get where they need to go. And, you know, even from my pillar days, I, you know, I noticed uh, that we would, we could come in um, be very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we left uh, it would tend to unravel. Yeah. Right. It would, it would backslide or yeah, it would go in multiple well, directions. Sure. Yeah. And so um, great to get them to some target level of agility, but then what? And, yeah. you know, how do you not just have it go spin out in, you know, in numerous directions? 
And so we have, uh, you know, some large customers in that situation today. They've made large investments. Um, they're, they're seeing a lot of success. Um, but how do they keep going? Uh, you know, the core principle is if you're not improving, if you're not getting better, you're mm-hmm. getting worse. There's no right. plateauing. Right. You'll get stale in what you do. You'll lose your focus. Meetings that should, you know, or conversations that should happen will get canceled. Um, people will become so delivery focused that the system of delivery itself in many cases will erode unless there's individuals who really care about it. Right. So, um, so if you're, you know, an organization that's made that investment and you want to keep moving forward together, right. Not as 14 different splinter groups and, or, you know, people going backwards. Um, what system do we put in place to make sure we're doing that? Yeah. We're always getting better. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think that's awesome. So, Maybe the last thread conversation. I don't know. I just kind of pick your brain on something. So last year we put together a conference called Elevate Agile. And the hypothesis of that conference was that um, we need to figure out as agilists, for lack of a better word, agile practitioners, how to elevate the conversation to our business owners and to make sure that we're not um, giving the impression we're just talking about team-based problems. And um, I don't know that we actually delivered on the promise of that conference. We're going to run it again this year and um, and try to elevate our conversation because like what we learned is that it's really difficult because to talk about enterprise agility on some level, you have to talk about team level agility, but then you get mired in the team level agility conversation and it's hard to talk about enterprise agility, right? You talk about enterprise agility and then people can't see how that translates to operations on the ground. So it's just kind of curious is in the last few minutes or so that we have, it's like, what's your, you've, you've worked across the whole stack, right? You've been a team level developer. You've been, you know, a CIO, you've led fortune 10 transformations. Like what makes this so difficult from a storytelling perspective? So I think in many cases, uh, you know, the enemy is us, right? So mm-hmm. um, even as agilists, many of us come from technical backgrounds and, you know, as technical people, um, we generally oftentimes don't get the business. We mm-hmm. don't really, uh, you know, we're given work to do. We go deal with technology. We talk in code, you know, applications and servers and mm-hmm. cloud or whatever. Um, and we have a hard time really thinking and talking in the business domain. So um, I think what we kind of saw at the conference is we ourselves draw the conversations towards technical topics and technical thinking. And if I'm the CFO or the CHRO and it's like, yeah, great, but what about my problem? I don't even understand what you're talking about. So the fact that we haven't sat in those seats you know, that we, most of us haven't been in a business operations role. Mm-hmm. Many of us, it makes it hard to translate. Mm-hmm. So we use very technical jargon. We don't even know that we're using. Yeah. Like even the examples we use, pull the conversation down, even right. though we think we're like having a big high level conversation, it just, the, their men, mental model goes to the bottom. Yeah. We, yeah. we mentioned the word velocity and then, yeah. you know, and then we're done. Right. right. So then uh, they're just going to gloss over and not know how to care about us. So in some sense, we're looking up mm-hmm. at the conversation and pulling them down. Uh, you know, I think that is, it's a big challenge. So, you know, the, the general kind of recommendation is go understand why your paycheck cashes, like Mm -hmm. go figure out what makes your business tick and, and, you know, what makes you win, what makes you lose and, and what your domain language is like, even that's a technical term, right? Yeah. But how, 
you know, how people talk to each other and, and try to understand the concerns. It's a little bit like the process that I went through coming into leading agile. You're going to have a whole bunch of agile things you want to say. It was kind of the conference a little bit mm-hmm. is there's all this agile stuff we want to talk about, but our business does not have an agile problem. Mm-hmm. It has a business problem that we believe could be helped or solved with agile. Mm-hmm. Um, so suspend disbelief, right? Take on the, uh, you know, don't be, try to be the expert, try to be the learner, let them coach you. So you want to so, be their coach. So you've had some you. success here recently with some very high level senior people and some very large companies. What's the, what's been the biggest mental shift for you as you're talking to them to convince them that, um, you personally, we as a company are able to solve their problems. So, uh, you know, first I would say is exactly what I just said is empathetic learning and listening. Right. So I don't tend to charge in saying I have the answer. I have the answer. Yeah. I truly do want to understand not just the, the corporate problem that they may be solving, but their personal, you know, kind of professional problem as well. Like what are you trying to do as a VP or a CIO or Mm -hmm. whatever? So I want to connect with, with personal value and business value, you know, together. Um, And personal value is probably the more important of the two. Um, And when, when I understand uh, what they think their problem is, I can help to diagnose you know, okay, that's a symptom. Here's what you really have to go do. Here's mm-hmm. what, here's here's where the the bleeder really is, and we got we got to get at it. So I can tie it to uh, you know, and and generally keeping it non jargonish. I don't talk to to be honest with you, I don't talk to executives about mm-hmm. agile that much. Sure, like I don't talk about a lot of any agile jargon. You know, we just don't talk about it. We talk about business problems. Yeah. We talk about, you know, governance and we talk about how we actually make decisions about what we're going to do and how we're going to fund that stuff and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how that helps them in market or whatever. So, so trying to make sure I'm staying in their world Mm -hmm. and solving their problems in a way that, that they can't see them, Mm -hmm. but I can because of all of the experience that I have. So, um, that helps provide, I think, uh, trust. Yeah. with them. So I start to establish trust. So I'm going to push it just one level a little bit further. So, so aligning on business problems, aligning on personal problems, caring about what they care about. How do you think executives understand the nature of their problem? Like, like I want to go to alignment, dependencies, things like that. Like, so I can have the conversation and avoid agile altogether, but I'd love your take on like what solution space words can people hear? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm tracking you. Yeah. You know, at some point you have to, uh, you know, you have to develop language that they can understand. Mm-hmm. That's not super technical jargon, um, but that conveys not just the problem, but how to go about approaching that problem in the organization. And, and you can, you know, you can crawl into their space to do it. They know what demand is. Mm-hmm. So if you talk about demand, demand management, those kinds of things, um, you know, they'll get it. And if you talk about governance, they'll get it. And so you don't say we need to prioritize backlog. You say we need to have a better demand management process. So it might not be backlog is the word I'm using. Right? Well, that would trigger but, them. The, the backlog yeah. word might trigger yeah, that, a negative, that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and beyond so, that, um, it's not just the backlog, it's the whole right. system yeah, around sure. it, right? Yeah. So um, it's a little too easy uh, in terms of, of how it sounds. 
But, um, you know, if you have an organization that is not making hard choices about what it wants to do and everything's number one and, and you're just thrashing, you know, all of the, the parts of the organization that have critical constraints and capacity and like it just, you don't have the, you're not going to get more work done than you have the capacity to do, but you're jamming way more work into that, you know, into that part of the system. Um, they get you. All right. Yeah. They'll track you. And when you, then you can start to slide in a little bit more into some of the structure, not get too jargony, yeah. but you can start to get them aligned to some, some of these, issues, yeah. these scaling concepts that we have. Yeah. Fascinating. Yep. Well, good stuff. So what do you think's next? What's the next big problem to solve? Um, Got to build my house. Got to so. build your house. Okay. So <laughs> understanding that. your personal problems. No, that's yeah. the personal value, right? So, I gotta so where are you at built. with that? Yeah. I, I heard something about a foundation. We have a basement and, yeah. after, uh, you know, after three years. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, that was non-trivial. You had to get permits and a bunch of other things. So uh, we may not want to, to, if we're doing federal work, this could <laughs> yeah. be a problem, but okay. the, the U S government had a, had a lot of interest in the sand by, behind my house. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> But I imagine you got that totally legally resolved. It took a it lot really of, yeah, I, actually, I had to hire consultants, as it turns okay. out. So, yeah. A little bit of, bit of irony there. Yeah, and they, they solved my problem, but it cost me some money. Well, um, the way but, it works, right? But they solved my problems. Yeah, so I got to do that. No, you know, I think the it's such a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next for me is continuing to do what I'm doing, which is primarily learning. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just, I don't ever feel the need to be done and to, to feel like I know it all and that I'm authoritative in some way. Like, you know, I just look back at, I have this habit and I've done it every five years in my life. And I look back and I, and I, and I think about how much I thought I knew yeah, and how much I actually didn't. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, and then I try to ground myself in the present with yeah. that. Like I, everything I think I know now, five years from now, I'm going to look back on and realize just how dumb I was. Yeah. And so, um, so for me, there's always going to be a focus on learning. Um, I actually did an interview with a guy once and uh, asked him what he learned on his last, in his last role. And he mm-hmm. said, nothing. Interesting. I'm like, how could you learn nothing? Yeah. It's, it's impossible, right? yeah. but it's not right. Experience happens to everybody learning. Not so much. Yeah. So he was getting experience, but he wasn't learning. I want to learn from my experience. So yeah, I, mean, cool. I continue to do that in terms of, you know, the work we're doing, um, you know, just continuing, uh, to evolve, and so, you know, to solve customer problems and, and what's really been fascinating through this whole journey is as I do that, um, and as we see success and we run into new types of things, we have to, to, you know, new problems to solve like this system of, of improvement, the same patterns emerge right. for me. I, you know, it's, I, it's mind blowing yeah. how much the core architecture of the solution yeah. is holding. Yeah, so when sure. I start to pull it apart, you know, what we're doing is we're break, we're basically breaking big giant changes into smaller changes and then even mm-hmm. smaller changes still that we can, we can have metrics in place and outcomes based plans to move, mm-hmm. you know, the change to create the change where, so we're taking big giant change problems, breaking them down progressively. Like we break backlogs down. And why, why do you think that's so controversial? Cause I feel like our approach is a bit controversial. It just seems, seems obvious to me. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, they, uh, you know, how waterfall has become kind of this, name we, we yeah. call each other it's even yeah. worse than the boogeyman right so <laughs> yeah. your waterfall yeah. um what people look at when you start to um to try to prescribe a pattern of change like developers i'm a developer we use patterns all the time mm-hmm. um we have books about them right and they they evolve 
So those patterns evolve with learning and technology, but we use patterns all the time. We don't start like every software project thinking like we're just going to have no patterns and start fresh, right. right? The language themselves, the languages, the systems we're on, the frameworks are all patterns. But there's this, I think, feeling that coming in and knowing what you're going to do in some set of patterns is is way too eager, too speculative. It's a waterfall. You're going to do these things and you're going to do those things. And they think about it like a Gantt chart. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really not thinking about change management when they, when they're thinking that way. And so, and I think, so I think there's a, there's a bias to emergence when we're doing transformation um, as if patterns don't exist and we all use them. Yeah. Right. Whether we think we do or not, whether we're horizontal in how we use them, like is a, is an XP guy and pillar and trying to teach people to do this. If I look back, I use the same patterns came yeah. in. Let's make you predictable. Yeah. I'm not going to have a definition of done for you that has you deploying to production multiple times a day. That's what we tell new people the when they month. join us. It's right. like, it's like find your previous success in the patterns that we bring to the table, because if you were successful, chances are you use these patterns. So in even in pillar, we apply yeah. these patterns. We didn't yeah. have a formal framework for it. Yeah, sure. And it was more gravitas. It was more individual to the work that I did versus the organ, you know, the rest of the organization. Probably a lot of reinvention. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so, you know, I found those patterns. I discovered those patterns over time because I just couldn't have a definition of done that was like continuous delivery. That's when it starts you out on. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had to, I had to create small changes get you predictable, reduce batch sizes and, you know, start to decouple you. I had to do all that stuff and I just did it. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know why. Right. right. Um, so I think uh, if people were to examine their histories a little bit, open their minds, I think they might find that they apply some of the same patterns. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the problem is, uh, you know, with, especially with larger organizations, um, like with the fortune 10 organization you're, you're referring to, if you have a thousand teams, let's say, um, And let's say we're just going to have coaches show up and coach stuff on the ground. Um, You know, whatever they see is what they're going to coach. Coaches come from different backgrounds. They have a thousand different directions. Yeah. Right. They're going to fight each other. They're Mm -hmm. going to disagree. Even if they think they're like-minded, like even in the XP community, we had developers, you know, or coaches fighting each other because Mm -hmm. whatever particular flavor, uh, you know, of Protestantism Mm -hmm. or whatever, they would still like find, find the opportunity to disagree. Yeah. And that confuses everybody who's looking at you and saying, Hey, like, can you make me competent? Cause I yeah. need to have a paycheck and I need to have healthcare. Yeah. Right. So, so it's not generally confidence engendering to people who are trying to go through this to see coaches arguing each other again over stupid stuff. Right. Yeah. So, but if we, if we actually have to scale the transformation, we can't have an ad hoc system to do it. Yeah. So to take a thousand teams and how, I mean, how many coaches would I go get and how long is it going to take and how do I actually know I'm having an effect? And then how do I know I'm not going to get like 48 ways of doing something that I don't need that cause a lot of switching costs and impedance mismatch in my organization and tons of noise. So I don't want the religious wars. I don't want any of that stuff. It's going to slow us down. It's going to make us, you know, look um, and, and feel a lot worse when we're, when we're going through this. So the patterns themselves, the application of those patterns, still tailoring those patterns. Like it's not check the box. It's don't take your brain out, right? It, these are tools and frameworks that I just like a, as a developer, how do I use it Yeah. in this context to solve this problem? You can start to scale. So I can take 
you know, rather than telling a CIO your transformation, cause you have a thousand teams, I figure we can do about 50 teams a year. Mm-hmm. So you've got a 20 year transformation. Right. Um, that wouldn't be a very popular message for me to yeah, go deliver. Sure. Right. So there's a way for us in the system uh, that we've created that itself can scale. So we have a scaled system of transformation beyond just a system of transformation that we can take a thousand teams and it can be, you know, a couple, two to three years to get them to predict uh, predictability. Super impressive. I couldn't do that if I didn't have a system. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for making the trip down. My pleasure.